there this morning. Um, we also have um, clipboards and other stuff. If Chad wants to take a piece of paper and follow along in the service, we try to minister to families um, best as we can, whatever life stage that, that they are in. If you want to turn to Galatians 4, that's where we are this week um, as we're in um, the Word of our God and plowing through the book of Galatians, nearing the end, we'll near the end um, towards the middle of July, and then we'll jump into the book of James. And so if you've been with us so far um, in the, the four and a half, five years that um, we've been learning from God's Word through the sermon, um, there has been a, a, a method to the madness, even though there's been a little bit of madness too. And um, we started with the book of Luke and the gospel um, telling about the birth of Jesus um, and who this Christ was and what he accomplished. Then we went through the book of Acts and we looked at the birth of the church and what God intended for the church as a whole as well as a church local. Um, and now we're going through Galatians, which is what does it look like to look specifically at the life of the believer and how we understand the gospel and live out that gospel in life. And then next we'll go to James, which is out of the New Testament, the most practical um, of all of the books in the Bible. So we move from Jesus to the church to the gospel to practical living. Um, where we go after that, we'll see, we'll see where the Lord leads, but that at least takes us through the end of end of this year. And so that's where we're headed. Um, one of the things that we find in Christianity, one of the things that I've found in my personal life as a Christian and as a pastor as I um, disciple and mentor folks, is that you can believe truly in the Christian gospel and still live a life that is marked by slavery to sin and a very little knowledge of God. You can be truly converted and not live a joyful, growing relationship with, um, with the Lord. Um, and that's part of the reason that the, the, the gospel is so good is because it depends on God's work and a simple profession of faith. Um, you don't have to memorize a shorter catechism before you can become a Christian. You have to simply just place your faith in God. But God wants more for you than that, and the principles of the gospel were not just intended to be believed, to be converted or be born again, but to be lived out in life. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the Apostle Paul talking back to these Galatians who had been converted and now are being tempted to dive back into spiritual slavery. And so truly converted... But some Jews had come in, um, some non-Christian Jews, unconverted Jews, and they had said, listen, Jesus, great and all, um, but you really need to add observance to the Old Testament law in order to be a really legit Christian, in order to be kind of varsity level. Um, we've got to do all of these other rituals and the observance of days and circumcision. Um, and Paul isn't just coming in like some fraternal debate and saying, well, my view or opinion on Christianity is, he's saying that is absolutely wrong, undermines the faith in which you've believed, and completely abolishes the gospel that Jesus came and preached and enacted in his doing and his dying and resurrecting from the grave. And so what I want you to consider this morning, being this far out now, some 2,000 years from when the Apostle Paul had written this letter to the church at Galatia, we now have another category. And so these were pagans who had come out of paganism and now were tempted to dive into Old Testament Judaism. So truly Christians, Old Testament was God's word for his people at one time, but they were going to give up their faith in Jesus for Old Testament rituals. Well, now we have 2,000 years of cultural Christianity. And what I found as a pastor is there are many people who think they are truly Christian, but what they have done is they've given themselves to the Christian tradition, 
to the performance of rituals and traditions and morals and, and beliefs, but haven't truly entered into a relationship with God, or truly converted Christians um, that don't know what it means to live in a growing relationship by faith in the Lord and simply give themselves to um, a system. So um, there's a danger here for all of us, and um, I think it'll be encouraging as we move our way through. And so um, I'm a little tired this morning. Um, I get some sense that y'all might be a little bit tired this morning too. And so I'm going to pray for us as we go into this word that God would give us energy and joy in the scriptures and the filling of the Holy Spirit for us to rejoice in who he is Um, whether we're weary or not. So let's go and pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the truthfulness of your word that we'll study here in Galatians 4. Father, whether there is um, spiritual darkness here this morning or physical weariness or just a lot that's gone on up until now that's distracting, we pray that you would clear all of that away through the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would give us such joy in the gospel and the person of your son that we leave this place knowing that you have loved us and commissioned us to serve here in Culpeper. So come and meet the needs of your people, we pray in Christ. Amen. So we'll read to you from Galatians 4. This is verses 8 down through 11. This is the word of our God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And so what you're going to see in this passage is it breaks down pretty easily into three little sections. Paul's going to talk about what their life was um, as Galatian pagans before they were converted. He's going to talk about what God did to convert them. And then he's going to warn them against returning to um, that same way of life. And so maybe even right now you want to think back to your life before you were converted, what your own conversion story was. And even now as a Christian looking back to the ways you may be tempted to live a life that was the life that you lived before um, you were converted. And so as you think about those things, we'll dive into um, our first point, what they were like before they were converted. And what we see Paul going into first is formerly when you did not know God. Um, that doesn't mean that those, the pagans were not spiritual. In fact, they were very, very um, spiritual people. But what they lacked is they lacked an intimate knowledge of who God was. And it's important for us to say that in our day and age because even though we have all kinds of folks rising to say that they are atheists or agnostic or agnostic atheists or atheistic agnostics or whatever kinds of unbelief that they want to profess, um, our, our age is ripe with spirituality. Um, So people are very, unlike other ages, they don't even care what kind of spirituality. They don't need to commit to Buddhism or Hinduism or anything else. They can simply say, I am a spiritual person. And that's a very accepted thing in our day and age. It's important for us to look at scriptures and, and certainly to take that at face value and not to be a jerk about it, but to be able to talk to that person from the perspective of Christianity and say, you may think of yourself as a spiritual person and you may actually have some sort of interaction with a true spiritual world that the Bible talks about, but you do not know God and I would like you to know God. So for my own story, I grew up at um, Galilee Episcopal Church in Virginia Beach and 
Um, I went through communicants class, and um, every kid who was in the sixth grade went through the class, and we met with the, the priest, and he quizzed us, and a terrifying thing about being at Galilee is um, all the kids were accepted into membership on one day, and it was a sanctuary, this huge sanctuary, it'd be filled with 800 people, and on that day, all of the communicants would have to stand up um, in the service, and the priest from the front would ask them Bible questions. Um, in front of everyone in the middle of a service, which was just terrifying um, for a kid. And so as a kid, and believe it or not, I was much more introverted when I was growing up, I was terrified of standing up in a church service and getting the Bible question wrong. And so I studied and studied and studied all of the data about Christianity and all of the data about Jesus and all of the data of the theology I could find and actually got my question right, was able to sit down, partook of my first communion, completely unconverted and dead in my sin, not knowing God at all, though still able to answer Bible questions in front of a congregation of 800. That's what the Bible says about me. And so I can resonate with that. And it, it wasn't until later on that I sat in a, a Young Life meeting and heard my Young Life leader, um, Mark Hutton, and my friend Matt Morgan, who's up in Reston as a pastor, um, talk about the gospel. And when I truly believed, and I tell people it's like a building that didn't have the lights on. And all of a sudden, all the lights came on. I had the structure and the setting and the data and the knowledge. I knew more about the Bible than some of my legitimately converted Christian friends. Um, and yet I did not know God. And in space and time, God came and decided to know me, which is our second point we come to. But we have to say to ourselves and say to our culture and say, everyone, I want you to know God. And if you're not a Christian, you do not know the true God. And I want to tell you about the true God. And in fact, what God has called me to be is a witness to who he is that other might know, and others might know him as he truly is. And so the Apostle Paul, talking to these pagans that were very spiritual people, believed in the, the panoply of Greek mythology and Roman mythology and all the different gods and goddesses and mounts and actions, still did not have a firm knowledge of God. Uh, very much in our day, when we look at different streams, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever they create tomorrow that we all sign up for, um, we all have a lot of friends, don't we? Um, and sometimes we look across our friends and like, how do I know that person? <laughs> or even in a small town like this, you know, somebody say, oh, you know such and such. And like, yeah, I think I might know such and such. We're in the age where we call um, acquaintances, or actually we call them as friends, and sometimes treat them as close friends and share on the internet all of the intimate close things um, about us. But do we really know them? That's the state of so many people without Christ. They're acquainted with God. He's a friend on Facebook. Sometimes, really, those are funny sites. Um, you can friend God on Facebook. Um, but they don't actually know him. They're not in a living communion, conversation, saving relationship with him. Now, on the other side, you'll see him say it's not just an ignorancy of who God is or an ignorance of who God is. It is also an enslavement. And so he goes on to say there in verse 8, you are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And again, it's important for us to participate in the conversation that's going on in our culture about spirituality because people are not saying that the current expressions of spirituality are enslavement. They're actually saying the opposite. They'll say, I am free to follow whatever spirituality that I'd like to. 
And Hinduism has freed me to understand all of the different spiritual things about me. And Buddhism has shown me truly and freely who I am. And what the Bible teaches is all of that is enslavement. And for so many people, the process of coming to faith is when their faith system, whatever it was, fails them. And they realize that it actually is a slavery and not a freedom. If you were to say to a a fish, I'm going to give you the freedom to breathe air rather than water, he would die. Actually placing a fish in water, the right system, is what gives it life. And if you try and make that fish survive in some other environment like air on the shore, even though it may say, we have have freed the fish from the water. Go and live in the freedom of being on the shore. Nevertheless, shrivels and dies because it wasn't made to do that. And so, so many people without Christ are enslaved to what they call freedom. And yet, remember, that's a slavery to, as the Apostle Paul says, not God's. He'll go on, actually, in Corinthians and say um, that he believes that the demonic is behind um, a lot of the, the different spiritual systems of the world, which... Um, which I believe. And so when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've had this crazy spiritual experience, I've met spiritual beings, or I've heard things, or I've seen things, um, I'm not going to say, listen, you're crazy. I think you might actually have had um, a spiritual experience, but we shouldn't assume that every spiritual experience is a good one, because we believe in good spiritual messengers and and angels of the Lord, and we believe in uh, malevolent um, spiritual messengers, demons from Satan and those demons don't usually show up and say, hi, I'm a demon, I mean to do you harm. (laughs) They show up uttering twisted things, things that sound right. And so, you know, when we talk about Islam, I I really believe um, that uh, Muhammad, when he was in the cave, I think he came into contact with a real malevolent spiritual being and created a faith system out of it to lead people astray. I really believe Joseph Smith, in his backyard, when he dug up his Bible, Um, I really believe he met with a real spiritually malevolent being that wanted to create a faith system to lead people astray. And so we have to speak that into our culture and say, the Bible actually does say that there are things that are not the true God, but nevertheless are enslaving spiritual beings. And we would wish that everyone would know God truly and step out of the enslavement to demons and malevolent spiritual forces if you want to read a book on that, read um, C.S. Um, Lewis's um, work called The Screwtape Letters, where he goes through and he writes a series of letters um, when the point of view is from a senior demon to a lower demon on how to lead um, a Christian astray. Um, and Lewis said when he finished that book that he would never again write a book like that because it was so taxing on his soul to try and think about from the perspective of a demon what it must be like to try and undermine a human, much less um, a Christian. It's very real. And for all of us, no matter when you were converted, that describes how you were before you came to faith in Jesus. It might have been a different experience. You might have you know, dabbled in all kinds of stuff. You may have just grown up in the church but not been truly converted. Whatever your experience was, you did not know God and you were enslaved um, to beings that were not God's. But as Ephesians says, in space and time, but God came 
And we move on to our second point in what God did. And what he describes is, you came to know God. And so you see that on in verse um, 9. If I get to the right page. Where he goes on to say, but now you have come to know God. Remember, Christianity is not some mystic experience. And when people come and say, I went out into the woods and saw a bright light, and so I'm a Christian, I say, well, let's talk about the God that you met. What, what do you know about that God? What do you know to be true about that God? And for many of you, your experience of coming to faith was, like I said, the lights just came on, and it feels like this Bible made sense. And all of a sudden, you know God for who he is, and you're actually comfortable with God for who he is. You know him and say, yes, I like, I like that God. You can see God in his justice. You can see God in his truth. And you can even see our God as the one who judges sin with a holy wrath. And instead of saying, ooh, that's kind of a mean God. I really don't want to be in a system of faith that has a God that's like that. You could say, no, I want a God that is like that, that is true, that holds the universe together, that holds all people accountable for what they've done, who is a good judge and is trustworthy. And you can say, yes, that is the God that I've come to know. At the same time, you've come to see that he is merciful and forgiving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you have known that he is not only that kind of God, but that kind of God to you. And so you can claim him as your God. One of the most interesting things as we read throughout the New Testament is how the writers of the New Testament use personal pronouns. So in the beginning of Galatians, what you saw the Apostle Paul say is that the Lord Jesus died for me. You could say, well, the Lord Jesus knew those disciples. He saw some people in the region in and around Jerusalem and Rome <coughs> um, in the days 2,000 years ago. But to go on and say, I know this God is real and he has loved me is what God does when he brings us to faith. And so it's my, my hope that you as Christians will constantly grow in your knowledge of God. And not just a bare knowing, but an intimate knowing. A, a knowing that knows him as a person, not just as, like I said, somebody on your friend feed, but in a daily conversation where he speaks to you through his word and you speak back to him in prayer. But then the Apostle Paul massages that passage, if you see. He kind of hedges, he makes a synonymous statement, and he goes on to say this, or rather, to be known by God. You see, it, it wasn't that we came into the right class. It wasn't that we studied the right book. It wasn't that our intellect was high enough to understand the books of the Bible, what actually happened in our conversion, but not just our experience of knowing God, but truly God coming to know us. So if you're a Christian today, it's not because you're a super smart person. It's not because you grew up in the right family. It's not because you went to the right college. It's not because you're a member of Christ's covenant. It's none of those things. It's because God sought you. Do you know why that's so comforting? Because there will be times when your ability to profess the things that I just said about God is clouded. There are going to be times that God's providence in your life, that his justice is going to look cold and uncaring. There are going to be times where it's going to be difficult for you to call on the name of God and ask and plead for mercy. There may come times where it's difficult for you to say anything to God and you find stretches of prayerlessness times when you are not growing in a knowledge of who God is. And in fact, some of the things that you thought to know are crumbling it's in those times it's important to read this and remember, it is not your knowledge of God that saves you. 
but that God has come to know you. In space and time, God said, I am going to know Joe Holland. And not know that I existed. It wasn't like he was oblivious to me up until then. I'm not denying God's omniscience. But that I have come to know him in a covenant way. So when God created Eve and presented Eve to Adam and they consummated their marriage and started living in marital harmony before sin, it said that Adam knew Eve. It wasn't that he knew her name and knew about her. It's that they had entered into a close, committed, covenantal relationship with one another. And God uses that word to describe his relationship with his people. It's now gone on to, into Yiddish to be um, really a, a somewhat of a nonsensical phrase. And so you'll hear somebody say, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Maybe you heard someone with a Jewish background say that. That word yada is the Hebrew word to know. And it's not yada, yada, yada. It's I know you. I am committed to knowing you. I will know you for the rest of your life. I know you when you get me, and I know you when you don't get me, and I know you're suffering when you can see your suffering, and I know you're suffering when you don't, and I know you when you're in joyful worship for me, and I know you when you are far away from me. God comes and he says, I have taken initiative in your life, and I know you. It is at the heart of what we call reform theology that was um, re-earthed, unsurfaced during the 16th century, that had been lost for so long, that God takes initiative, that he is preemptive, that our experience of coming to faith may be through a book or saying, I now understand, I can now articulate the gospel, but what happened before that was God decided to know you and love you and commit himself to you so that whether your knowledge is growing or crumbling, whether it is clear or it's cloudy, we can say yet, I have been known by the Lord. The Lord God has loved me and given his son for me and his intimate covenant knowledge of me and where I am will never fail. He knows you so much better than you believe. Probably enough that you approached it, you'd probably be pretty uncomfortable. A lot of times we, we hide in our suffering or in our sin because we think that God is far away. Oh, Christian, God is not far away. God is near to you, and he knows you, and he never leaves you or forsakes you. We have this concept. I run into it all the time in my own life and when I do pastoral counseling that we are these people who, who are far away and that we make this choice to get near to God. I'm going to do a discipleship program and get near to God. I'm going through suffering. Well, now I'm far away. Well, I'm singing and have a good time. Well, now I'm near to God. Well, you know, I, I did some pretty awful things. Well, now, now I'm far away and I feel kind of blah today. So I'm a few steps here. And maybe if I do something else, I'll be a few steps closer. We, we have this idea that there is this movement toward and away from and toward and away from dependent on how much we feel about God or what we know about God or what we're doing with God. But what this teaches about salvation when the Lord knows you, he's always near you. You never leave his presence. And one of the most healthy things that you can do as a Christian is simply to cry out to God in that truth. So many people I know get this wrong in prayer. They think, I will pray to God when I stop suffering. I will pray to God when I read a book on prayer. 
I will pray to God on a good day because I can kind of go into his presence when I feel like I'm doing well. But on a bad day, I don't. He's always with you. Prayer is an honest conversation with God. And so it's saying, Heavenly Father, I am enthralled with your grace in Jesus today and I love you. You come in and say, Heavenly Father, I have no idea where I am and I can't see you or feel you, but I know that you are with me. Heavenly Father, I am being tempted to sin. Heavenly Father, I am in sin. Heavenly Father, I just finished sinning and I need your mercy and your grace because I believe you are with me and loving me and that you know me. This is a beautiful truth about Christian conversion. We do have an experience of coming to know God and growing in our knowledge, but the root, you hear Paul saying, rather having had God come to know you. Now we step into our last point before we conclude um, this morning. And this is, there are a few things is scandalous, I should probably say, in the Bible is this. And you're going to miss it if we don't camp on it for just a second. <laughs> he, he goes on to say this through the end of verse 9. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Do you get how crazy he's talking right now? I mean, understand this would make sense if the Galatians had decided to return to paganism. And that's what you think they're doing. You read it and you go fast and you think, oh, they're returning to their life of Greek gods and Roman gods and all kinds of other things. Weak and worthless elementary principles. That's not what's happening. They are being enticed to try and worship God according to Old Testament, Old Testament ceremonies and laws. They're not going back to paganism. They're going to the Bible. They're going to the Bible contained in the Old Testament. And Paul is saying that you can go to the Bible, you can go to something that at one point was the way that God used to meet with his people and it still be called weak and worthless principles of God. Paul, principles of the world. Paul is looking at Judaism now and he's saying the Judaism that he grew up in, if you return to after you've met Christ, it is as bad as going to paganism. Isn't that crazy? I mean, now do you get why the Jews were so upset with Paul and tried to kill him everywhere he went? He was saying that Judaism without Christ was the same as paganism. And you've heard us say this before. There are two ways in which we can try and worship. We can be very irreligious. We can worship God in the wrong ways. Paganism, wrong ways. Always been the wrong ways. Never been access to God. Or we can take some of the systems or the methods or the principles of right worship and turn those into a system of worship that don't terminate in Jesus. And so we can take the Old Testament law and we can have Seder feasts and we can do our best to obey the Ten Commandments and we can work our way through the Old Testament and have festivals and days and we can say, we're obeying the Bible. We're doing what the Bible says. We can avoid polycotton blends and we can not eat shellfish. We can do all of these things. That at one time, God used to meet with and protect his people and communicate himself to. And if it is without Christ, then those things are equal. And so if we're going to add to that, you can take Christianity. 
the trappings of Christianity. You can do um, evangelism explosion, and you can memorize the confession, and you can read the Bible from front to back, and you can read all of the Puritans, or you can read the most recent stuff on the bookstore. You can do all of those things, and if you're not doing them through faith in Jesus, and it depends on him alone for your salvation, you can actually use those things in a weak and worthless way to try and earn your salvation before God. Christianity and its trappings can be just an easy, as easy a way to miss God as paganism if you use them that way. It is that easy. Empty religion can go under any guise. And so what is it that we're missing? Apostle Paul uses the word um, elementary principles um, of the world. He used a previous, we talked about it actually two weeks ago. If I could describe it to you, I'd describe it to you this way. Sometimes when I tell you about the biblical word flesh, maybe you've heard that word in the Bible, and when you hear flesh, you think kind of nasty, icky sin. Um, that's, not, that's one of the ways that the Bible uses that word, but that's not the only way. The Bible uses the word flesh to describe all of the ways that we personally try and make our lives work without Jesus. So for you, how do you make your life work without Jesus? How do you try to control your environment? You can say, yes, Lord, I love you, um, but I'm not willing to repent in that relationship, and so I'm actually going to be stubborn in my sin because I would rather that relationship have me trying to control it with stubbornness and impenitence than actually repenting and admitting that I was wrong. How many of you want to actually wallow in your self-pity when you're suffering rather than running to God because you actually prefer self-pity to the glorious and gracious approval you have in Christ? How many of you would rather have your, your identity rooted in your job because you're actually pretty good at your job and you hear more approval or you think you do from your boss than you do from the Lord? How do you try and make your life work without Jesus? If we were to take those individual things and create systems, that would be the elementary principles of the world. So whether it's Americanism, Republicanism, Democratism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever ism, whatever life way, commercialism, consumerism, buying stuff, whatever it is, as soon as you make an ism, you've left behind the Lord Jesus. We are called not to an ism, we're not called to principles, we're not called to days or seasons or rituals. We are called to the Lord Jesus to serve and honor and to love him, the one who has served and honored and loved us. And because it's Christ and the one we're called to, he himself guards us from falling into all the silly stuff that other people do. And so you could say, our God's a God of truth. And we can fall into truthism and run at truth everywhere. And you can be a really unloving jerk who's really truthful about everyone except yourself. Or you could say, God is love. We can become loveism. And I'm just going to go around and love everybody and think to love everybody and tell anybody that they might be doing something that even approaches being wrong would be very unloving. And a loving person never says anything wrong or believes anything. You become a very lovingly unloving person who's never willing to tell somebody that they might be doing something wrong because you love them. But if we're focused on Christ and what he's done, if he's the center of our faith 
and what he's accomplished. Well, we can be both truthful and loving. So if we're being truthful and telling the truth and we find ourselves being arrogant jerks, we can repent of that and said, I want to be truthful, but I want to be truthful like my Christ. Find ourselves being loving and we act to all of a sudden enter into conflict and tell somebody they've done something wrong because we love them. We can do that knowing that there's Christ and even if we make a mistake, we don't say enough or we say too much, we can repent because Christ has already given himself for us. Every system fails. Every way to make life work without Jesus fails and you will always be tempted to return to it. And so we will choose performance-based religion or we will choose true Christianity. And what the Apostle Paul has said is true Christianity focuses on Jesus, our mediator, the one who has died for us and forgiven us and introduced us to his Father and given us a Holy Spirit that helps us to cry out, Father. And so we come and we've done things. You've showed up on time, some of you have, 10.30 this morning. And we've sung set songs that we usually sing. And we did a catechism that drew from the Heidelberg and the Westminster. We're about to have a membership, um, member join through a membership process. And we're going to come to a sacrament. And all of these things are very ritualistic. We have a liturgy. We have a creed. But none of those things in and of themselves make us right with God. It is only Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. And so we do all of these things to remind ourselves of that, not to find in these things some kind of salvation in the performance of them. But it is so dangerous. And so the Apostle Paul would warn you, just because you're not wearing you know, suits and ties, just because we don't have an organ and pews, doesn't mean that you've got legit church down. And all of a sudden, if you had organs and pews and I was in a robe and we were in suits and ties, doesn't mean that you're doing church right. It isn't the components. It's what the components drive us to. Which is why all of a sudden Judaism that was so right became so obsolete. Judaism pointed people to Christ. And so when the Christ had come, the pointing was no longer necessary and in fact distracted from meeting Jesus. It was the same reason that there was a Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and John Calvin weren't trying to undermine the Roman Catholic Church. They looked at all the trappings that had been created over hundreds of years and said, it's hard to see Jesus. It's hard to see the gospel and everything that we've added. Let's clear this stuff away so we can see Jesus and his glory and his grace and his love for us. The one who has come and known us. The one who receives us as we are. The one who doesn't require any service or ceremony or ritual or days. The one who has already performed everything and now invites us into worship to come in true freedom and knowledge of God and to worship him and who he is. It's wonderful. I invite you to that faith and that we would walk with one another in it. It's one of my big dangers and temptations as a pastor. It is so easy for me to hoist upon you a program and not give you Jesus. I would show you Christ. I would have you meet Christ. I would have you know and grow in relationship with Christ. And yes, it's going to be reading the Bible and sacraments and these different things that we do. But I want you to know Jesus. 
I want you to be free in his gospel, to have no list of performance that you need to do in order to earn his favor or his smile, but to know it is already yours. And if knowing that you are free in Christ, if knowing that you are happy in God, and knowing he's forgiven all of your sins makes you ask the question, Lord God, how can I proceed into that holiness? How can I step into that happiness? What can I do to capitalize on all of the beauty I found in you and you hear him say the ways of Christ and you're simply growing in happiness in that performance. So the Lord says, I want you to meet together with your brothers and sisters in Christ every seventh day and worship me. He's not saying, now I'm backdooring performance in. He's saying, let me show you how you can even grow in happiness and knowledge of me. If he says, I want you to read my word and so know me, he's not saying, do it or else I'm going to frown and be angry. He's saying, grow in your happiness in me. Thomas Watson, um, old Puritan white dead guy, um, was talking about his, in the description of the Shorter Catechism, um, and he gave this description of the Shorter Catechism. He said, what if there was a king? And that king said to his servants, you would honor me so much. You would be so obedient in my kingdom if you would just go to my, 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 my yonder royal gold mine and if you please could cart off as much gold as you could hold, and when you bring it back, go back with your cart and keep getting as much gold from my gold mine, I would be the happiest king that ever would be, and you would be the most obedient servant in my kingdom. What kind of kingdom and what kind of king would that be? One with abounding grace and benefit. And so for the Lord to say, Run to the people of God. Run to me in prayer. Worship me in song with loud voice. Go to my word and study it. And in those things, mine as much grace as you can. And when you've carted it home, go back to it again. You would make me the most happy God. The most blessed sovereign king. If I knew that you were taking advantage of all of the benefits to know me and strive towards greater happiness in God and who he is. That's the Christian gospel. It is particular and it is unique. And on every side of it is the temptation to performance religion. It is cloaked on every doorstep. It is in every book, every blog, every site, every workplace, every family, every neighborhood, every beat of your heart, every affection you've had, and every thought, it is befraught with temptation towards something different. And so we are a congregation that ties ourselves to the mass of the gospel of Jesus and says he has loved us, he has known us, he has saved us, and by his grace he is making us a happy and affectionate people in him, not because we do right things, but because Christ has for us. We do wrong things, he's satisfied for those too, and so we can come in joyful and happy worship. And hopefully never have the Apostle Paul look at our church and say, I may have labored over you in vain. Let us be a people who hold ourselves to the glorious grace of Jesus and find our whole happiness and joy in him and in his worship. Let me pray for us and then let's sing. Father, we love you.
We're thankful for this gospel of grace. We're thankful for what you've accomplished through Christ. Would you guard our congregation from every temptation, guard every believer here from the temptation to performance-based religion. If there's someone here, Lord, that has been in performance-based religion under the name of Christianity or something else and wants to step into a true relationship with you, I pray they would find you this morning, that they would place their faith in you, repent of their sins, and know Christ your Son as their Savior, you as their Father, and the Holy Spirit is their friend. We pray and we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Why don't we stand and respond in song?